Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Today we begin our wandering of J.R.R. Tolkien's masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings. We start with the prologue concerning hobbits, but after only two words, we'll need to turn around and explore the labyrinthian depths of the first poem printed in the book. Join me, Aaron, your fellow wanderer and host, as we unravel the layers of meaning behind those initial words of the prologue, this book, and venture into the heart of Tolkien's literary craftsmanship, where every word holds a hidden tale. Now, let's wander. I received another Shire letter from Paul, who in our last episode asked about the origin of trolls, and has now asked about the origin of dragons. I'll get to that answer in a moment, but if you would like to send me a Shire letter, you can drop me an email at lord, that's lord with a d, lord of the rings podcast at gmail.com, or tap the link in the show notes. Like the origin of trolls, the details on the origin of dragons are pretty few. However, as stated in the prologue, quote, the world being, after all, full of strange creatures beyond count, I find it most likely that Morgoth, Sauron's master, took some creature we may be familiar with, a worm or lizard or both or something besides, and used his power to corrupt that creature into the father of dragons, Glaurung. However, what is clear is Morgoth's motivations. After his initial battles with the Noldorine elves, he realized that orcs would not be strong enough to defeat the elves in battle. So he sought for other means and creatures that could overpower the elves, hence he cultivated dragons into being. Now we begin at the beginning. Not chapter 1, mind you, nor even the first age of Middle-earth, but actually the first page of The Lord of the Rings, the prologue, section 1, concerning hobbits. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed already, make sure you hit that subscribe button and share with your friend. Here are the first two words of the prologue. Quote, this book. Now let's stop right there. What is this book? I give you two answers to what this book might be. The first is obvious, and yet not so, while the second is richly wrapped in lore. The obvious answer is this book means the physical book you are holding in your hands. However, even that is not so easy. The book that you're most likely holding as you start reading The Lord of the Rings is normally printed as The Fellowship of the Ring. But the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, and the Return of the King are actually not three different books, not a trilogy, as they are often thought to be. In Tolkien's mind, The Lord of the Rings was one great novel, one great whole, he might say, that by necessity of writing and publishing had to be separated into three distinct publications. 
which Peter Jackson used as the three major separation points for his movie trilogy, with some selective adaptations. However, this book gets more complicated than that. If you've only ever seen the movies but haven't read the books, you'll be surprised to learn that the singular novel of The Lord of the Rings actually has six different groupings called books. These six books, published two each in Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the King, each have their own beginning, middle, and end, but also contribute to the majestic, comprehensive whole. In the Fellowship, Book 1 starts with a long-expected party for Bilbo and Frodo, and ends with Frodo crossing the ford into Rivendell. Book 2 begins with Frodo waking in Elrond's house, and ends with Frodo and Sam leaving the Fellowship and striking out on their own. In the Two Towers, Book 3 begins with the departure of Boromir. Yes, Boromir's last defense of Merry and Pippin, and his final moments with Aragorn, and his burial boat, are the opening of Book 3 in the Two Towers. You see, at the end of Book 2, or The Fellowship, Tolkien made the style choice so that each book would follow a particular plotline for that book, without a lot of jumping back and forth like what we see in the movie. So Book 3, in The Two Towers, follows Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, as well as Merry and Pippin and The Return of Gandalf, and ends after Pippin has looked into the Palantir and is thus whisked away to Gondor with Gandalf. Book 4, again in The Two Towers, covers the same time frame, more or less, but follows Frodo and Sam. It begins with Frodo and Sam capturing Gollum, and follows the three hobbits as they encounter the world of men at the introduction of Faramir. And it ends with Sam choosing to bear the One Ring after Frodo has been poisoned by Shelob. Yes, the stairs of Kirith Ungol and Shelob all happen in the Two Towers, unlike the Jackson films. You can also see the complexity of following two different plot lines adds to why Tolkien was so obsessed with making sure that the timelines were so precise and so well articulated across the different plot lines. For the final two books, each published in The Return of the King, Book 4 follows Pippin and Gandalf at Minas Tirith, Aragorn passing through the paths of the dead, the Battle of Minas Tirith, and all the way up to Aragorn and the host of the West marching to Sauron's gates and demanding he pay for his crimes. Book 6, the final book, again follows Frodo and Sam as they make their way through Mordor, the destruction of the Ring, and then six chapters of After Action, where the entire story comes to its close. If you thought Peter Jackson's Return of the King film with all of its surprise endings took too long, imagine having six more chapters of After Action before the story is actually over. In these chapters, we see the four main hobbits saving the Shire from industrial destruction at the hands of Saruman, and finally ending with Sam's words, Well, I'm back, which echo Bilbo's own journey through Middle-earth, there and back again. Woo, are you lost already? Who knew we could get so much out of the first two words of The Lord of the Rings, this book? But I have another, more lore-infused answer as to what this book is. This answer has its roots in something that Tolkien claimed in the Waldman letter, which we explored thoroughly a few episodes back. One of Tolkien's claims was that he had the feeling of discovering a history that was already there, and he was simply the recorder of that truth. Therefore, the history itself needs a device by which it is recorded. Returning to the prologue, we read this line in the first paragraph, quote, Further information will also be found in the selection from the Red Book of Westmarch, that has already been published under the title of The Hobbit. 
That story was derived from the early chapters of the Red Book, composed by Bilbo himself. Ah, there it is. The story that we encounter in The Hobbit was not written by Tolkien per se, but rather written by the Hobbit Bilbo. Thus, the Lord of the Rings is also the record of hobbits. For this reason, we have so many scenes in the Jackson films of Bilbo or Frodo writing in a red book, and even Frodo passing the book to Sam. The appendices, too, it seems, are written from a hobbit's perspective, probably Mary's and Pippin's. This red book, which we call The Hobbit, started as Bilbo's diary of his journey, but grew to encompass Frodo's journey as well as background information on the various kingdoms and histories that all culminated into the War of the Ring. Sam's descendants maintained the book and made several additions and copies. And if you look in Appendix F, Part 2, Tolkien explains how he had to make some translation decisions in translating the Red Book to our modern English. How Tolkien came across his copy of the Red Book, he never says. But to me, it is a fascinating literary device that lends credence to the historicity of the Lord of the Rings. So, this book is both the physical copy you hold in your hands, as well as the original record as it was passed from Bilbo, to Frodo, to Sam, to Sam's descendants, and finally, somehow, to J.R.R. Tolkien. Wait, we're only two words into the Lord of the Rings. Aren't there like 1,000 pages? Yes, I warned you that this would be a deep dive, a methodical and careful wandering of Tolkien's magnum opus. But why start with hobbits? Yes, this book is written largely from their perspective and from their experiences, but there's another reason. To find it, we need to look backwards from the prologue to the foreword to the second edition, written from Tolkien's first-person perspective. In the foreword, Tolkien admits that he, quote, had little hope that other people would be interested in this work. Since he viewed it primarily as a linguistic exploration of ancient languages. Yet after The Hobbit was published, Tolkien was, quote, encouraged by requests from readers for more information concerning hobbits and their adventures. But for Tolkien, the story wasn't just hobbits and their wanderings in the wide world. No, indeed, quote, the story was drawn irresistibly towards the older world. To Tolkien's surprise, and probably his dismay as well, the story, quote, became an account of its end and passing away, before its beginning and middle had been told. This means that The Lord of the Rings was the end of Tolkien's great legendary world, its passing into ancient myth, even though he had been working on the beginning and middle nearly his whole life. The beginning would be published after his death as the Silmarillion, which covers mostly the first age of Middle-earth, and we have nearly 100 episodes that explore that work in its complexity and beauty. The middle would be the second age of Middle-earth, which is explored mostly in the appendices and other works. There's a wonderful compilation called The Fall of Numenor that takes the Second Age material from all its various sources and lays them out in chronological order. But in this zoomed-out view, I see a pattern. The First Age deals mostly from the Elven perspective, the Elves being the chief recorders and memory keepers of that time. But their time is limited, and thus the Second Age is a mix of both Elven records and the records of mortal men specifically the island kingdom of Numenor, while the records of the Third and Final Age are written from a hobbit's perspective. What species are hobbits? Back to the prologue we go, quote, It is plain indeed that in spite of later estrangement, hobbits are relatives of ours, far nearer to us than elves, or even than dwarves. 
Yes, hobbits are a strain of the species of mortal man. Despite their film-adapted pointy ears, or their murderous tendencies from Rings of Power. So zooming out, the first age in the Silmarillion is the Elven Perspective. The second age is mixed. The third age, found in the Lord of the Rings, is recorded from a mortal's perspective, that of hobbits. In this passing away, we see the fulfillment of prophecy, first recorded in the Silmarillion, that the elves would thrive but would pass away, and thus be teachers to the second-born, mortal men, who would become the caretakers and inheritors of the physical world. Okay, wow, even I'm getting a little overwhelmed by this. But you know what, I realized that we skipped something very important, and we need to go back even further to before the first two words of the prologue to explore a passage of the Lord of the Rings that you could likely quote. In fact, let's try it. I'll say the first line, and you quote the next one. One ring to rule them all. We'll get to that right after this break. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. You can be the hero of your own Marvel Comics adventure. Marvel Strike Force is an extraordinary mobile game, a haven for comic book enthusiasts and gamers alike. Lead your own fellowship of heroes and villains to battle against the forces of darkness that threaten the very fabric of the universe. From the menacing Doctor Doom to the formidable Apocalypse, every battle is a chance to prove your mettle. And right now, Marvel Strike Force is commemorating its six-year anniversary. That means free rewards await those who heed the call and sign up today. With weekly events and bonuses, this anniversary celebration promises a treasure trove of special rewards. Rally your allies, sharpen your blades, and dive into the action of Marvel Strike Force today. Use code MAXPOOL to unlock free new treasures. That's code MAXPOOL, all one word, on the mobile game Marvel Strike Force. Now, back to wandering. Did you say the next line? If you said, one ring to find them, then you got it right. But I'll also give you points if you said, and in the darkness, bind them. I know, I was a tricksy little podcast host, but forgive me. Yes, we need to examine the ring verse. We've touched on this poem in previous episodes, alluded to it, and even compared it to some lyrics from the films. But we haven't done it a just wandering as it stands. If you've never read the ring verse, then pause this podcast, find your nearest copy of The Lord of the Rings, and open up the page right after the title page, or Google it, and then come back and hit play. For our wandering of the verse today, I want to explore three different literary techniques that Tolkien employs in this verse, kennings, alliterations, and double entendres. Don't worry, longtime listeners are familiar with our English Literature 101 segments, particularly from the Baron and Luthien story in episode 20. We don't do these often, but if you really want to understand J.R.R. Tolkien, some English literature analysis is helpful particularly because Tolkien was first and always a philologist, or lover of languages. As an academic, he studied ancient texts, and the stories, characters, complexities, and even literary devices used by ancient poets were a major inspiration for him. As a student of Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and other sources of Old English, Tolkien was very familiar with kennings and alliteration. 
A kenning is the combination of two nouns that form a new noun. A great example would be Eowyn, often called a shield maiden of Rohan, or Frodo, who is a ring bearer. Kennings riddle Old Norse poetry, yet due to grammatical constraints, they can be hard to translate into modern English. In the ring verse, we find two kennings, both hyphenated, elven kings and dwarf lords. We also find two more not hyphenated, dark lord and dark throne. Is the dark here referring to the descriptive word or to the noun? Is Sauron simply described as dark, or is he something greater, the lord of darkness, something that made the dark part of his nature? Another ancient device is that of alliteration in poetry. Alliteration is the deliberate close following of words that match their beginning sound. Writers of Rohan, for instance. In the ring verse, we find two alliterations in this line, quote, Nine for mortal men doomed to die. By using kennings and alliteration, Tolkien is drawing from an ancient literary past. He is grounding his work to feel and sound as if it really is a translation of an ancient text, a piece of written word that stands its place among the ancient literary greats, such as Chaucer and those that preceded him. But there's also more going on here. Tolkien, ever the linguist, ever precise in his word choice, leaves a few double entendres for us to grapple with. A double entendre, as defined by Wikipedia, is, quote, a particular way of wording that is devised to have a double meaning, one of which is typically obvious, and the other often conveys a message that would be too socially unacceptable or offensive to state directly. We've already seen some of these double entendres, Dark Lord and Dark Throne. But there's a more complex one, and since it's the only line repeated in the poem, it carries heavy significance. Quote, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. The first meaning is obvious. In Mordor, the shadows dwell. They can be found in Mordor, that's where they lie. The other meaning is more complex. Lie is also the word to tell an untruth, to be deceitful. And what is one of the titles most often given to Sauron, in particular by Aragorn? Sauron, the deceiver. And what was Sauron's motivation in teaching the elves to create rings, and then forging his own master ring? To deceive them, and thus subjugate them to his will. As Galadriel says in the prologue of Peter Jackson's film, quote, But they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. So. In the ring verse, Tolkien is skillfully grounding us, the reader, in ancient history and has deftly introduced us to the main villain, the Dark Lord, and his chief skill, deception, all of which is wrapped into the one ring, the one ring that will rule, find, bring, and bind all the others. Well, we didn't get nearly as far today as I'd hoped. But I hope you enjoyed looking closely at the ring verse and the first two words of the prologue. If you did, please hit that subscribe button and share with a friend. Next time, we will wander ever deeper into the peculiar and childlike people, the hobbits. Thank you for wandering Middle Earth with me today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.